Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Well, good morning and happy Easter. And it is great to see a few familiar faces floating around that are back in and around and also a number of guests with our, that are with us this morning. And so uh, I just want to extend a warm welcome to you. If we haven't met, I'm Sam, one of the team here. And uh, my hope and prayer for you this morning is wherever you come from, uh, wherever you sit on that spectrum of faith, that you would see Jesus just that little bit more clearly as we celebrate Easter together. I don't know about you, but have you noticed how, have you noticed how adults have a tendency to operate in grey zones? <laughs> like when, when, do we, when do we learn how to do that? Uh, because it, it seems it seems to happen somewhere around the teenage years. You, you get about fifteen or sixteen, and your friends say, you, "Are you going to be there Friday night?" And you just don't reply via text message, or <laughs> you just don't turn up. Uh, and then and then you have the grey zone where you get you get your heart broken because uh, the boyfriend or the girlfriend is is no longer there, and they they just ghost you. Is that the term that they use now? The millennials use now, they, they just ghost you, they, they just disappear and, and, and you say, I thought we had something going on here. And, and they say, well, you know, we were just, we were just dating. You know, what's, what's that supposed to be? <laughs> then you go work for an employer. That doesn't work out because you're on probation. <laughs> you, own a, you own a house, you own a house and uh, it gets flooded and you call the insurance company. Oh, don't you love those calls? There's a grey zone right there. You know, you know the greatest antidote for a grey zone in the world? A child. <laughs> here's how grey zones work in my house. Dad, are we, are we, can we go to the zoo tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Now, Dad, can we go to the zoo tomorrow? No, I look, just chat to mum, she, she can work it out. Dad, are we, are we going to go to the zoo? Yeah, I, 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 I think so. And then I'll literally grab my face and say, Dad... We go to the zoo tomorrow, yes or no? <laughs> Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, yes or no? Even when it comes to the Bible, we adults like to use grey zones. And haven't you seen the way that the people constantly live their life in a perpetual grey zone when it comes to the topic of death? Uh, it could be anywhere from that narcissistic co-worker or boss who doesn't care about anyone else and their fundamental reality is, well, you know, after we die, we're not too sure, so I'm just going to live how I want to live. Then you have, the, you have the, the contrast of someone like Mother Teresa who, who gives up her life in sacrifice for others through, the, through an entire lifetime. Which, which, way, which way is it? You see, why this is so important is that we are inescapably hope-based creatures. How we behave now is based upon our, our believed-in futures. Our believed-in futures affect our present behaviour and constantly. You go to work or you, you, you move into life this week after the long weekend and you watch how often people are revealing their believed-in future each and every hour of the week. It's such a weird grey zone, the problem of death, because last time I checked, the mortality rate was 100%. I'm not too sure. <laughs> I, think, I think we're all heading in that way. That's what Good Friday showed us. Uh, but, 
but there are grey zones when it comes to it. And yet it was like the atheist philosopher Albert Camus said that on one hand we can live in the dualism of happiness and unhappiness, the dualism that even in our unhappiness that maybe that will be compensated for by happiness one day. But he says we cannot live with the reality or the thought that our life would be meaningless. I love the way that the Bible calls this out. It it just tells it how it is. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Let me translate that for you. What Paul is saying is that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, we should just pack up and go now. We should just brunch. In fact, don't, don't just brunch. Have a lot of brunches and a, and, a, and, a, and a very long drink and whatever you want to do because for tomorrow all of this is meaningless, says Paul. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, yes or no. What if it's true? Or more scarily, what if it's not true? You can interpret Easter two ways this morning. You can interpret it as a way just to talk about the rhythms and the pattern of life. You know, that good things can happen to bad people or good can come out of bad or life goes round in its circle of life. Or, or you can deal with it as a fact. And the fact of Easter is this in verse 18 of John chapter 20. Mary says that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. There's the key fact of Christianity. If you didn't know, the Bible didn't create Christianity. Christians didn't create Christianity. This created Christianity. The resurrection created Christianity. I've seen the Lord. And so the question for you this morning, wherever you sit in the faith spectrum is, have you ever wondered, what if it's true? What if it's not true? How often do you live your life in light of that question and that reality? And and here's, here's why it's so significant. Because everything hangs on this. Everything. It's quite humbling as a pastor because you sort of come to realize that you spend like the other 51 weeks of the year talking about ways that we can improve our little Christian lives. And yet at the end of the day, everything comes back down to this question. What if it's true? What if it's not true? All of us, whether you're a Christian or not, live out of this reality. And so this morning, I want to talk to those who sit at some different ends of the spectrum. I want to talk to those believers, those Christians in the room who, you know, you've been wondering. You've been believing, but you've been wondering and things are happening in your life where you're starting to feel scared or the only person in the room because you're worried that your faith is at stake. Because your minds begin to wander. I want to talk to the person this morning who is wondering, maybe you've just seen a Facebook post or you've wandered in or you've looked this up on the internet and, and you're searching, but you're wondering how could anyone possibly believe? And I want to invite you to wonder again about this big question because the first thing that we've got to wonder about is, what frame of reference, what view of the world am I, am I wondering through? You see here in John's gospel that it's so true for Mary. She stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. 
At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Hold on to that. And he asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. So some context to this passage here. This is Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples of Jesus. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but one of the disciples of Jesus. And so Mary lived with Jesus. She ate with Jesus. She stayed with Jesus. She followed Jesus around the countryside. She spent hours with Jesus. This is someone who had, who had been with Jesus the entire time and she gets to the tomb and she misses it. Not three strikes, but four strikes she's out. Like, first of all, two angels. There's a little clue something's going on. <laughs> Angels talking to her. Where's Jesus? Empty tomb, bedclothes there. And then the, the last piece is Jesus himself is standing in front of her. And you've got to wonder for someone who has spent all this time with Jesus Christ, how is it possible that she doesn't understand that it's Jesus standing in front of her? Have you thought about that? How, how, could, she, how could she miss that? You know what my answer to that is? Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, you know that tendency to reaffirm your beliefs based on what you already know? She was suffering confirmation bias because here's what she believed. Nobody was expecting nobody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. see what I did there? <laughs> what well, you have to understand, particularly if you think that, that Christianity exploded on the stories of a bunch of gullible people, that a resurrected Jesus was just as ridiculous to a young Jewish woman 2,000 years ago as it is to the modern Sydney cider. And that is exactly the reason why she didn't understand that it was Jesus in front of her because she was so blinded by confirmation bias that, that she didn't see through her own inherited framework, her own way of looking at the world. And if you didn't know, we all have our own ways of looking at the world. Seeing is not necessarily believing. We all see differently. Look at this silly picture that's caused me a lot of grief throughout the 90s. <laughs> Does anyone know what this is? It's a magic eye picture. Yeah, I, I, I have to say that is one of the worst coffee books that was ever invented. <laughs> Because you would go around to someone's house and people would look at an image like that and they would go, oh, wow, it's a T-Rex. And I'm just looking at a set of patterns for about 15 minutes and I'm like, I can't see anything. And then someone else would gather around and they're like, oh, it's amazing. It's coming straight at us. And it really is a T-Rex, you know. It's just not working on the big screens. I'll email you a copy. But you look at all these people out here going, oh, oh. <laughs> Anyone here one of those people in the magic eye era that could never see the pictures like me? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We're the chosen ones. <laughs> I think Christianity can feel the same way for some people. You see all these Christians living big lives. Oh, I feel the presence of the Lord. Oh, I just feel God. He's just so real to us. Oh, my goodness. Look at what Jesus has done. And you're, you're left over here in the corner going, I, I don't. I don't see it. In many respects, Christianity, though, is like how you learn how to see that magic eye picture. The, the only way I learned eventually how to do it is you actually have to stop focusing on the thing that you're so incessantly focusing on and relax, step back, see the bigger picture. Let your eyes unfocus and then you can see it. Anyone got, got taught that? Confirmation bias. By the way, um, confirmation bias is not just for Christians, you know. 
It's, scientists are the worst offenders at confirmation bias. <laughs> they, they had confirmation bias for 2,000 years. And if you don't believe me, maybe you've heard the story, but at one point for about 2,000 years, scientists believed that the sun revolved around the earth. We've heard this. 2,000 years. How do you do that? Confirmation bias. They believe the sun revolves around the earth, which, by the way, side note, in Easter here, that's actually the world's best definition for sin. (laughs) Isn't it? Sin's not good deeds versus bad deeds. Sin is just the belief that the entire universe revolves around you. Where was I? Confirmation bias. Yeah. Um, and so they're in 2,000 years of confirmation bias. Their, their self-affirmed belief locked them into a frame of the world that they could never see outside of. And then this guy, Copernicus, comes along and he looks out the windows and he's measuring the stars at night and he gets his little fountain pen with a feather and he went, mm, what if maybe it's not the sun around us but us around the sun? And at that moment, people believed again. They believed again. Believing again is never really a matter of having faith because that's often the objection, right? You think, well, I can't believe like these Christians because I'm not a person of faith. No, you're a person of absolute faith. Mary was a person of incredible faith. Mary was so locked into her pre-existing belief that people do not rise again that she couldn't see Jesus right in front of her. And so if it's true that scientists have to go through this process of believing again over and over and over again in order to make these discoveries, then here's my question for you this morning, particularly if you haven't yet discovered Christianity. Could it be, could it be that you've been locked into your own confirmation bias? self-perpetuated, inherited beliefs. Because often if we're real about it, we've inherited these beliefs. We've inherited this view of the world. Uh, We get it from mum or dad and they're so regular and predictable, like your religious beliefs. uh, Or you might have inherited a way of looking at the world like moralism. You've just got to be a good person and then you get to go to a special place when you die. Or maybe you've inherited an atheistic point of view where mum and dad have always told you that there is no God from the very beginning. And you look across to Christians and say, well, you've all, they've all just inherited their beliefs. They just grew up in the church. And yet if you're thinking that way, is it, is it possible that you are standing upon your inherited beliefs as much as everyone else? Confirmation bias. Oh, they're just gullible. But she wasn't. Nobody expected nobody. And Mary's doubt that Jesus was alive was not because she lacked faith in the resurrection. It's just she was already a person of faith in something else. And that's, that's the wrestle that we have at Easter. And maybe some of you are saying, oh, you know what, this, this sounds very paint by numbers. You know, just think this through, A versus B. Look, if it was paint by numbers, uh, I would have resigned long ago. Trust me, in all that we do and we work through in this place, and yet time and time again, we see people, grown-ups. There's a guy this morning, I wish we all could have been there to see it. This morning up at our Taramara location, uh, we've got a 60-something Vietnam War vet getting baptised this morning. (laughs) It is awesome. We deliberately didn't heat up the baptistry for him, just, you know, to... Prove he's, he's with it. Lovely guy, Hilton, and we're celebrating all that uh, is happening up there for him. But this is not paint by numbers and this is not growing up in the church. Something happens that shifts people from not being able to see God when he's right in front of them to, to seeing God like a 3D picture. 
And here's how I want to share as we get ready to close this morning how it happens. The only way that this really happens, 9.99 times out of 10 as a pastor, I tell you this happens, is that you have to have a gardener moment. In other words, God has to disrupt you. Look at what it says here. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, to which she explained, Rabbi. In other words, he says, Mary, Mary, oi, oi. <laughs> and then bang, it's like scales from her eyes fall in front of her and she sees Jesus truly for the first time. She got disrupted. And 9.99 out of 10, 10 times, that's how it happens to happen as a pastor. You know, very rarely do I ever see this situation as a pastor. That someone's sitting on the 42nd floor of Australia Square and they've just worked an 80-hour week. It's about 10.59. Uh, they're closing down the computer on a Friday night. And they think, mm, what am I going to do this weekend? Well, I'm going to go to yoga and I'm probably going to do some Pilates. And I think I might take up Christianity. <laughs> It doesn't happen that way. God's got to disrupt you. He's got to move in and, and more, more often he, he, he disrupts you with a disrupted life, an inexplicable life, someone that you just can't explain, someone like I've shared with you before, the beautiful and the late Anne Gibbon, one of the founding members of this church and my final memories of her just a few weeks before her death. As, as she said to me, Sam, what are we doing here? I'm dying. <laughs> what are we doing and then she says, and by the way, before you say anything, get me, get me another biscuit because I'm tired of dieting. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and we're all chuckling and laughing away. I'm like, who talks like that? A disrupted, uh, a disrupted individual. An individual who is revealing to us all in that moment the power of their believed in future. She knew where she was headed and in the face of death she can laugh. And isn't that what we want? We want big lives. We want courage. We don't want the anxiety. We want to live a life of adventure. And so we need to be disrupted. It means for you this morning, if you are yet to follow Jesus Christ, the most disrupting question I can ask you this morning, if you are hearing this, is why in the world are you here? There are so many other things that you could be doing right now. You could be branching. <laughs> but you're here. That in itself is a disrupting moment. Sit on that, think on that. But Christians too, we also have to recognise for the rest of us that God also uses that disruption to move us closer to him in the most profound of ways. Because there might be some of us, if it hasn't happened yet, it will. You know, I meet people all the time where they get really caught up and they get nervous. They even get scared that they sit in church and they feel like this. They feel like, you know what, Sam, I'm the only person at the moment who seems to be doubting my faith. And they're often terrified that if they let anyone know in connection group or if they told the pastor, oh my goodness, you know, the roof's going to start falling in, right? But there's bound to be one of you or some of you this morning that are hearing that and you need to hear this morning that that's okay. And then more often than not, God uses the disruption, as we heard on Good Friday, more often than not of suffering and of pain and of loss in our life to shake us and to shake us away from those inherited paradigms. You see, we can think that we've built our lives upon Christianity and all we've ever really been doing is building our lives on a routine or a pastor or a way of doing church or a certain way to read the Bible. 
And when these things come in and test us in our faith, God disrupts us and he shows us what those things really are. They reveal our faith for what it really is and it gives us the opportunity to come back and to work out what it is that we've really been putting our faith in. The only way that you begin to believe again, whether you are a non-Christian or a Christian, is that God has to disrupt you. And so we come back to the most disrupting question that anyone can think of in Christianity. You ready? I'm each going to spiritually grab you by the face. (laughs) Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? Yes or no? Friend, whether you are Christian or non-Christian, stop playing life in the grey zone. Have the gumption to call out the way you live on the basis of your truly believed in future. If Camus, an atheist philosopher, can understand that, then for each of us it hits us in the face that Easter is inescapable. All 51 other weeks, yes, that will be nice together. But for this moment, now it rests on this. Was he raised from the dead? And wherever you sit in your faith, I believe that you want something more than the world that we see around us. And that if you are anything like me, then I also agree that I can deal with the dualism of happiness, unhappiness, but I, can't, I cannot process the thought that our life and my life is meaningless. And the truth of Easter, when we see resurrected body, when we see it all starting to sinews come back again and life come up again, then it tells us of the great truth that many families will be living this Easter as we finish this morning. I don't know how your family works it out, but this is how it happens in my family with the Easter egg hunt. The way that the Easter egg hunt happens in our family is all the eggs are out there. And then you set the siblings free like a bunch of rabid greyhounds. <laughs> and they start running around the backyard and there's shoulder charging and there's elbows and there's fists in the face. Is that like your family as well? And there's this, this consumption that could be happening at the same point in time. And normally, nine out of ten times, it ended in tears. My family, at least, here's what happened uh, one Easter. Maybe the folks just had enough of it. Uh, we all come running back, and being the eldest, I always had the biggest bucket, of course. <laughs> so I came back, back there. I, I'm followed by three other siblings who are all in tears or yelling, It's not fair. <laughs> to which point, Dad thought, I gotta fix this once and for all. And he said, Pour all the eggs into the middle. And then he'd count them all one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you. And then, and then it would all spread out, and there was peace. And that was beauty. (laughs) And high blood sugar levels. (laughs) The truth of Easter is resurrected Jesus, living, breathing. I've seen the Lord. I've seen him. It's God's cosmic way of saying all of the unfairness, all of the loss, all of the pain, all of the injustice, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when he's, he's putting all the eggs in the basket and it's all coming back. And it's all going to be right, and it's going to be fair, and it's going to be sorted, and it's going to be wonderful. Let's pray. Father, as we move into this moment, I ask that your spirit would press into our hearts the reality of the truth that we've heard this morning. Father, as we're shoulder to shoulder with people around us in an auditorium full this morning, Lord God, help us to wonder and marvel at the reality of this. That here in Crow's Nest, 
There is life. There is community. There is faith. There is strength. There is courage. There is resilience. There's perseverance. There's supernatural ability. And Father, we're on the other side of the world. And so may our gathering together in this moment, Father, be a declaration to the watching world of that truth this morning, that he's alive, that he's alive. So Lord, this morning, I pray for anyone who's been in those moments where the disruptions of life have meant that the Sunday school answers haven't stuck up, they haven't measured up. I pray if this maybe just be their last chance, their last try with you, Heavenly Father, that this morning and in you in a fresh way, um, your spirit would move them and touch them and open their eyes the way that Mary's were. Rabbi, teacher, God, you're right in front of me. Father, for those that are believing but are beginning to wander and they're terrified by it, Father, I pray that they would be comforted by this reality too. Your hand is upon them, Father, and that this is all just the ongoing process of making their faith stronger. May we rejoice in that. And Father, for the rest of us, whether it's our fifth or our fiftieth Easter, we pray desperately that you would move us beyond the routine. And for these brief moments and these remaining moments that we have together in this service, that our minds would be lifted up lifted up into the reality of this fact of Easter. He's alive. I've seen the Lord. And that we each would begin to wonder again. And then in the months and the years to come, the overflow of love and of joy, of courage and of fearlessness would ooze from people who are walking to a radically different believed in future. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.